0: to Undercommon Taste. This is a podcast where we create and discuss homebrew content for tabletop RPGs.
1: A gift for you. I found it in the snow. Fragile beauty clinging to the life in this frozen wasteland.
0: I'm Ian Woodworth. I'm joined by my co-host James Daly, and today we have a very special guest with us, John from Valiant Fox Gaming, here to talk about his 5e campaign setting, Fading Embers. John, welcome, welcome to Undercommon Taste. All right. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me.
1: Yes, definitely. We've been looking forward to this for a while, so.
0: Yeah, it's this particular uh, interview <laughs> has been about a month in the making, mostly on our end.
1: Yeah. <laughs> so it,
0: John's had all of his stuff together. It's it's yeah, been no, all, it's... it's been all us trying to make everything work. <laughs> What's oh. a
1: little chaos amongst friends? But yeah. when Ian told me about this in this setting, I love the idea for this setting you made. And we'll, we'll get into this, but we're super excited. I think there's so much that can be done here. And I was like, yeah, we have to do this. This sounds great.
0: All right. So, John, let's go ahead and start off with the simple stuff. Can you give <laughs> us some general introduction? Tell us who you are, what you do. Tell us a little bit about your company. and Name, uh,
1: birthday, it's social security, bank routing number, that kind of stuff.
2: My mother's maiden name. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right, I've been tabletop role player for about 30 years. Uh, I'm definitely a forever GM. And I started working on this setting. It had a beta probably in somewhere in late middle school that, you know, was not great. Um, but uh, in 2014, I moved from New Jersey out to Ohio and I was playing around with it just sort of as a thought experiment. Like, you know, I'm older, I'm more mature. Maybe let me see if I can take this old idea and make something that's decent out of it. And then while I was doing that, I started running my game online with friends back on the East Coast using Roll20. so I figured, well, I'm I'm in a new state. There's a whole new uh, fifth edition had just came out. And so I thought, let me see if I can make this work just in the new edition. And we can all sort of world build it a little bit together as we figure out the rules and more things come out. And so it's definitely, it's a homebrew setting that's been turned into a campaign setting for lots of people to see and enjoy. Awesome.
1: Yeah, I mean, at the start of a new edition is kind of a great time to just kind of jump in with both feet and go. So good timing, I guess, you know, as it yeah, (laughs) yeah,
2: just total serendipity.
0: Yeah, and it's a really interesting concept. We're going to let you go into a little bit of detail on that here in a second. But the thing that I love about the books is the art. Because the art in these books is fantastic. Absolutely. Thank you. It it is phenomenal artwork.
1: And you talk to most people that get into D&D, and it's the art from the books that have really drawn them in. I'd say at least two-thirds to three-quarters of the people, and that's just me pulling stats out of thin air. But it is a huge, huge portion of the people that are like, yeah, it was the art from the books that got me into exploring the games. And I think you have done that a great service.
2: Oh, thank you. Yeah, I started one of my good friends, she's an artist and she was one of the players. And we started it just as a project that both of us were going to do. And at a point she realized that the scope of what we were building was maybe way too much on her shoulders to provide all of the art. And so she wanted to step back and become one of the artists. And that was when I realized like, all right, well, we're going to have to do Kickstarter then because (laughs) good art costs money. I'd recently watched the Eye of the Beholder documentary, which is all about the history of D&D through the art and the right. artists. Yeah. It's such a great documentary that, yeah, I knew that I wanted to have really good eye-catching art and to really try to represent lots of different people in it, you know, more in line with the 5e core book than, like, second edition AD&D rule book, like, the kinds of people that were portrayed in there, you know, just so that both people can find characters that look like them.
0: Yeah. So one of the things that James has started doing with our guests. And I'm going to jump all over your question, James.
1: No, go for it.
0: (laughs) So what is your real life D&D class? What class would you be IRL?
2: (laughs) Um, I think when I was in my teens and 20s, I was more of of a bard from second edition. I love the sneaky stuff, the skill monkey. They had access to everything. They had access to all the wizard spells and stuff. Now I think in the last decade I'm I'm more of like a fat wizard in fifth edition. <laughs> I'm certainly less acrobatic than I used to be. Probably a little bit less sneaky, you know. But I've stored up a large repertoire of game master skills, nice. like wizard spells. Most data I love that.
0: All right. So could you take a minute to just sort of give the elevator pitch? What is Fading Embers and how it differs from your traditional. Official sure. published settings. Right.
2: The basic premise is it used to be a typical D&D fantasy world, and then that world was thrust into a very sudden and unnatural ice age. And the timeline in the setting manual picks up a little over 900 years after that. And so lots of races are extinct, lots of monsters are extinct, the world is cut off from the outer plains, so there's no access to the usual deities in the D&D multiverse, and it centers around one sort of large pocket of habitability that's left, and there's really only one big kingdom and everything else is uh, powerful city-states and just the wide stretches in between definitely influenced by the old tsr dark Sun setting in many regards there as like a post apocalyptic fantasy world and not having the gods
0: uh, also plays into that
2: right yeah certainly because to be able to use the open gaming license publish it on your own you can say some things if you publish it in the dms guild you can say everything i knew that i wanted to go to drive through rpg instead of the dms guild so i just kind of had to make my peace with like there's a large list of places that i can't talk about (laughs) and a lot of them are connected to the planes. and again it was just a little bit of serendipity where just how i decided to sort of isolate the world it just made sense for my meta plot the whys and wherefores of what the ice age what caused that and what all the problems are but the after effect of like interplanetary travel's not really a thing so gods and goddesses aren't interfering all the time it really worked out well and it you know it's a sacrifice my <laughs> best friend was very surprised when he was like but you love planescape all of your campaigns touch planescape <laughs> <laughs> sorry not this one just you uh, gotta
1: go a different direction No, I love this. So for me, hearing this, this very much had a feel way, way back when we had world build with us, you know, we were kicking around ideas. And one of the things was, you know, like a wasteland with oases of civilization habitation and a frozen wasteland was one of the ideas we kind of brainstormed it and wound up discarding. Like I said, I love that concept and it kind of has that feel of maybe like, If you've watched Avatar The Last Airbender, where you have the northern and southern water tribes are the kind of set up on the poles or even like the Game of Thrones with the long winters and beyond the wall, it kind of has that feel to it where, again, it's cold, it's harsh, it's frozen. It is a struggle to exist, but you can do it. And there's still a weird beauty to be found in the world, but it is a very harsh and dark world. And like I said, I just love that theme which is weird because I hate being cold. I hate cold elements, but yeah, favorite <laughs> animals are cold weather animals. I love cold weather themes. You will find me basking in the sun like a lizard any given day. It's just what a lifestyle.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to blame Fresno for that one.
1: Yeah, you probably should. <laughs> I, I belong on Arrakis. I was a desert creature.
2: <laughs> uh, I'm the opposite. I'm very, very sweaty. So the cold is wonderful. So it really <laughs> worked out that I ended up in Cleveland, Ohio, because The first year I worked on this setting, I didn't see the asphalt of the street I lived on from October to March or April. (laughs) So it's really easy to work on the setting here. (laughs) Yeah, I I can imagine.
0: Yeah, I I used to be a welder and a sheet metal worker. And so, you know, getting into a welding shop in the middle of the summer and it gets up to about 115 degrees in the shop. So, yeah, I don't do cold that well either. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, um one of the feels that i got reading through the fading embers books because aberrations play a huge role in the setting mm-hmm. and it struck me very much like a uh, had a lot of parallels to the dresden files books especially the later books where they're actually starting to really get into the creatures from the outside and their interference in the world did you draw any influence from <laughs> the dresden files or was that complete I, happenstance actually-
2: Total happenstance. I've okay. I know of them. I've never read them. Okay, I have many friends who say very good things about them. Yes, great series. Um, I think it's just that I have a love of like Lovecraftian mythos.
0: Okay, okay,
2: stuff. And cutting off the setting from the outer planes is then you cut out the demons and the devils and the angels and, and a lot of other things. And so I ended up focusing on very different monster groups. That don't usually end up in as much of a spotlight, like aberrations and the Fey.
1: Yeah, yeah. No, that's great. I love that. And
2: and you can do anything with both of those groups. Like you, you can do really so okay. much with those groups. Oh yeah, especially the Fey. You can do anything you want with the Fey.
0: Yeah, it's all a question of do you want it to kind of make sense? If yes, <laughs> go Fey. If no, go aberration. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. If if all you want is a writhing mass of tentacles, aberrations are right there. Yeah,
2: perfect. They're wonderful for it. Yeah, they don't have to make sense. I don't know how it flies, but it does.
0: It doesn't know how it flies either. It just, it wills (laughs) itself to fly, and there it goes.
1: Well, again, that is a great thing with aberrations. They don't have to obey our laws of physics and reality because they don't belong to our reality. So they just, uh, I ignore your reality, and I substitute my own. And okay, it's lore, fine.
2: (laughs) Yeah, that's basically the core of the Lovecraftian mythos is I don't understand how this is happening. Yeah. Like, it's just right there. Exactly.
1: Love it. So one of our previous guests, Jake Dukeson, he uses the OGL to create his own game here of Tario. And I think you kind of mentioned this a little bit before, but why did you decide to brand Fading Embers as a 5e supplement rather than as a standalone game?
2: Definitely partly because the setting was developed in my 5e homebrew. Okay. So that was the basis of it, but also I'm not a very natural salesperson, <laughs> so tapping into a pre-existing customer base had a very large appeal gotcha. for me.
1: Now, a now, completely sideball question with this is, with the hint of 6E50, whatever they're going to call the new edition that's apparently knocking on the doorstep soonish. maybe, are you going to try to adapt or change that so this fits that better, or are you going to leave it as is and say, hey, because I mean, it's great as it is, and it could stand alone. Look at this. If you pick it up, it is a wonderful system. It is beautifully done. But are you going to try to further adapt it as D&D changes it, or are you going to let it stand?
2: Yeah, it might depend on how. How different whatever comes next is okay if it's more like oh it's really kind of 5.5 then some adjustments could be okay. made if sixth edition is super different then yeah then i might i might not want to spend the time adapting it but yeah like i've definitely thought about putting out an adaptation for uh ancestries and culture Okay, You know, going through the races chapter and splitting it all apart to adapt it to that. Because there's a lot of good things there to think about. You have some
1: great stuff in your ancestries and your backgrounds and stuff that I love that you put in. And we will brush up on this later, I'm sure. But, I mean, what you already had in there was, I thought, very well done. And I was very excited. I'm like, dude, I love this. You know, it's kind of got some beef to it, you know?
2: Thanks. Yeah, and I, I basically just finished pretty much the whole player's manual when Ancestries and Culture came out. And I was like, wow, I love this. But I also really do not want to go back through (laughs) and open this back up to tinker with it. Right, yeah. Like many of the sub-races, sort of are just cultures in my player's manual. And I did add in little homeland ability lists in the setting manual so that if you're from whatever city, state, or homeland you're from, there's like three minor abilities and you pick one of them. Yeah. And so, like, I was already thinking along those lines. So, I think that's why it, uh, it, the, when it, when it came out, it really appealed to me.
0: And as the person who does all of our write ups, I can definitely see where you would want to see <laughs> what the changes are before committing to anything Ready? like that. Because, <laughs> yeah. you know, yeah. if it's just a simple go in and rearrange some verbiage. You know, change this phrase to that phrase. That's a simple thing. You can do that with control shift F and just go for it. <laughs> but if it's, you know, a complete mechanics rework, that's asking an awful lot. Yeah,
2: yeah that's a lot of game balance to consider <laughs> and, and rules to be remade. So cross that river when it gets here. Right. No, I totally get that. In the meantime, I'll just enjoy and keep building, keep writing more stuff.
1: Yeah, and like I said, even what you have now, I cannot express enough, is fantastic. And if you didn't change a thing, I would still be in line to grab these books because the system as you've developed it is absolutely wonderful.
0: Thank you. So one of the biggest changes within Fading Embers compared to one of the official published campaign settings is that certain races, classes, and spells have been greatly limited or completely excluded from player options. So, for example, fire magic is extremely rare in your setting. I think it's only one type of cleric that can really handle Yeah, fire magic. yeah.
2: Divine fire magic, I really reined it in um, a lot.
0: And also, officially, warlocks can only have a single patron, who is the... Yeah, that's a big one. <laughs> ...who is yeah. the, the reason for the setting... Yes, Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll let you I'll let you spoil that if you want to. So why did you decide to make such prohibitions in your setting?
2: I think first, just knowing that I wanted it to have sort of a post apocalyptic feel greater in some regions than others. Like to get post apocalyptic, you have to have limitations. Because if everything's available, then it's not very apocalyptic at all. It's quite before the end of the world. And in a setting where it's going to be snow and ice, if you don't rein in fire magic a little bit, then uh, the parties aren't going to have too big of a problem.
1: Just everyone walking around with their uh, personal space here to be like, "What? Well, it's magic. <laughs> yeah,
0: like,
2: "What? Oh, it's fine. It's easy.
0: Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, because create bonfire is a cantrip. Yes, exactly.
2: Yep. <laughs> yep. And so I have decided to rein in specifically divine fire. And there's reasons in the meta plot, but just within the setting, yeah, there's this little island, city-state, nation, and they've always worshipped a fire deity, and when the Great Frost happened, that's when the Sudden Ice Age began, they just sort of switched to a new fire deity and kept on going, and everybody else lost fire magic. And so the world hearth has sort of cornered the market on it for various reasons, and they're not a proselytizing faith, it's just sort of like a, hey... I just want to warm the world. I'm doing my best. Don't even pray to me. Like, they don't even answer prayers from people who aren't, like, on their island. Because otherwise, I mean, who would pray to anything else in a world like that if they would respond?
1: This kind of gives me a a bit of, I'm going to summon a terrible movie, and I apologize, but Kevin Costner's Waterworld. People loved it. I didn't think the movie was (laughs) great. But you have that resource scarcity or even something along the lines of Mad Max, where you've got this resource scarcity. And I love that there's a feel of that, particularly with heat and different things, because it is, as you said, it's post-apocalyptic and it's cold. And so, yeah, you know, sources of heat and light and things like that are going to be kind of cloistered. So I like how that's there. And again, kind of just building up and seeing this with my own imagination, because no matter what system or books you have, you know, the players in the DM's imaginations leak through and each story and game's individual. But yeah, I was definitely getting the feel of these kind of just kind of starting to seep through.
2: Yeah. And then, you know, because I limited Divine Fire Magic, I decided to leave Arcane Fire Magic be. And so then as I just sort of progressed logically with stuff it seemed like well then probably sorcerers and wizards would become pretty popular people in the world and wizards need to learn stuff but sorcerers kind of just need to be born so like noble classes and politicians and leaders start intermarrying with sorcerers and fast forward however many centuries and what you get in the core lands where most of the population still lives most of those places are ruled by a sorceress nobility cast who just sort of cornered the market over generations
1: as you're going to do and that's perfect i love that
2: as one would do and it's one of the ways that corruption is a big theme in the setting even political corruption (laughs) because along the way they not only manage to make the people in charge are all sorcerers but they develop a cultural taboo against wizardry
1: yeah
2: because who wants that competition
1: that's right Um,
2: but also at the same time wizards have necromancy And sorcerers don't have necromancy, and so that you can give them that out if you want to make them a little bit less politically pure evil, Uh, but like something that like, well, yeah, people are scared of necromancy, like certainly just the general populace.
1: And I love that the normal D&D trope is, you know, the scorn from wizards to a sorcerer because, you know, I've spent time and I've studied and I've learned and I've earned this power. (laughs) Someone who's born with it and now it's kind of flipped. Well, like, yeah, we're born with it. This is our birthright. And you're going to read books and try to copy us, Clev, you know, so I kind of like that flip, too.
2: Yeah. And that, like, we're born this way. It's very natural. Yeah. Wizardry, you, you, you read a book and then you hold it in your head for a little bit and then you forget it. Seems weird. Yeah, seems unnatural and then along with that warlocks are so rare population wise in the typical fantasy world and uh on the world of nith where fading embers is set as you said there's only one warlock patron available and so that shrinks the overall number of warlocks even more but then i was looking if you put warlocks and wizards side by side there's a lot of overlap in their spell lists and then they can both have special magic books they can both have familiars, and so within the setting, I decided like, that that kind of gets caught up with this taboo against wizardry, is that warlocks are so rare, people don't even know what they are. They just assume that they're wizards. Nice, I love that. And, and most uneducated people wouldn't know much about either. And so, like, yeah, there's so much overlap that they often get confused, and they get blamed for the actions of the other, and vice yeah. versa.
0: Yeah, and one of the things that I really enjoy is that despite all of those restrictions, there's a huge amount of expanded player options.
1: Absolutely, yes.
0: If my count was right, you had 23 new subclasses for all of the core classes. You have additional spells, you have four new races, you have new subrace options within the races, you have expanded spell lists, especially for the sorcerers, new backgrounds, and they're, they're all very well done.
1: They are extremely um, well done.
0: One of the questions that I have, though, is if you were running this game and someone came to you with a from the player's handbook class mm-hmm. race combo. Would that fit in your world, or would you be like, "Eh."
2: Probably would fit. Certainly most of the classes would fit. Any class from an already published thing would fit as long as it didn't break kind of those two main class things that have been reined in. If it's a warlock, you have to go with the Unborn Majesty. And if you have divine magic and you want to have fire magic, then if you're a cleric, your domain has to be the domain of the World Hearth. Uh, and if you're something else like a paladin or a ranger or a monk or druid who wants fire magic, then you could go with whatever sort of circle or subclass archetype you want, as long as you just make your homeland the island of Bacau But everything else is totally workable, my own game. Like, yes, some people helped me playtest the new stuff. The paladin was a paladin of valor the first time around, and the ranger was a hunter. And yes, we definitely use that. For the races, it would be a no. So I did completely retool each race in our player's manual. Elves, dwarves, sort of everything... Some of that was just little tweaks that I kind of had always wanted to see. One thing that you might not have noticed is that nobody really lives quite as long as they used to. I basically shortened the overall lifespan for pretty much every race, just as a side effect of how terrible the age that they're living through is. And
1: And again, if it's this bad, it's your average lifespan, and there's more monsters or more things die, yeah, that makes sense. So yeah.
2: And so some of it was that, and then some of it was, you know what, how about I just definitely just tweak all of the races and just say, hey, if you're a half orc, use the half orc in my player's manual and not the player's handbook, just so that people only have to look in one place so that they don't get confused about which book their pre-existing okay. race would right. be in. Okay. And it I like that makes, that everyone's makes, say makes things that. easier for everyone.
1: Yeah. I like that your overall changes to 5e is rather minimal. Again, you've pulled back your divine fire magic, you've changed Obviously, a bit of the setting. Everything else seems to work. But where you do have your hard rules, like I said, with your characters and your races and stuff, you've put in so much work and so much detail. I actually think I prefer... What you present in your books towards the oversimplified version in current 5e. If I had to pick between the two, I would definitely go in your direction. I like that more complex, in-depth character creation personally. I understand why 5e has done what they've done. They've done great where they've made it far more accessible to people. Oh, certainly. That said, you are not unaccessible. It's just there is more to work with, but I enjoy that. So yeah, absolutely love love what you've done
2: thanks yeah i like getting specific and then you know i was able to build the setting into the character creation particularly places like with the elves and the dwarves like i don't exactly need to reinvent the wheel but all of my sub races for elves are based just on the setting the setting map sort of looks like a mediterranean sea map and the little southern continent that's visible on it in that place elves ended up fighting with humans as they were both migrating towards the equator the humans lost and now there's two elven city states down there and the elves did not enjoy the war that they had to fight back then uh, and they've kept the humans under wraps since then so these are extremely evil societies that okay. have slave caste. Right. uh so southern elf is a subrace And then in the north, I decided to try something totally crazy, and the elves made peace with the dwarves. They said, hey, the world is freezing. Can we move in with you? We'll bring all of our stuff, and we'll share it with you forever. And the dwarves decided, sure. And so they moved in together and started creating just sort of a whole new culture.
1: Now we have Dwarves.
2: <laughs> yeah. And then I made Dwarves. <laughs> na- decided not to name them that. <laughs> Certainly. I'm um, kind of glad like, that you didn't because, yeah. <laughs> because
0: of the memes around the Dwarves. You know, yeah. Because, you know, the joke race as presented is... We take all of the limitations of both races and just sort of slap them together. (laughs) And what you came up with instead is actually really, really cool. It really is, yeah.
2: Thanks. It almost didn't happen. (laughs) So they're called the Grand Cities. And yeah, it took a lot of brainstorming and rewriting to figure out what a civilization of elves and dwarves living in harmony, like trying very hard to create a very nice isolated socialist utopia. Because who cares if it's an ice age if you live inside a really warm Dwarven mountain? Yeah, seriously. So uh, you have like the dwarves and elves are great at making stuff. You know, They just sort of combine all of their strengths and they could build this wonderful civilization. Kind of um, makes then- people like and at the point my wife's an academic professor and so she does research she does does tons of writing and editing and rewriting so she's my developmental editor as well and towards the end of the setting manual she said there are half elves and there are half orcs and stuff like why can't there be a half dwarf half elf and I just thought like well you know I hadn't thought to actually make that but then I thought like if there's ever been a setting for D&D where that could organically happen. The Grand Cities is definitely the place that, to try it. Yeah. And so for those listening, they're called Foundlings. They come in Hearthblessed or uh, Starblessed, which just means they always have metallic colored skin. And the blasts have the warm golds and coppers and bronzes, and the Starblessed have the the silvers and the steels and the irons. And even within the setting, they are an extremely new race. They haven't even been appearing for an entire century as of right now. And so the word foundling is like, oh no, here's this poor <laughs> infant or orphan, let me bring them in. So it wasn't like that. They were abandoned. It was just this um, oh my god, look at this incredible, unexpected treasure that we found. Let's cherish it. And that the existence of foundlings really sort of solidifies what the grand cities have built. And then if a game master wants to poke holes in my happy socialist (laughs) utopia and there's the opportunity for the ultra conservative traditionalist elements in a culture like that to really be driven into very negative heights fighting against that like oh my god no it's an abomination why like this is this is proof that we never should have done this
1: now, the Foundlings, you bring up the Hearthbreast and the Starblast, and this brings up two questions for me. One, reading through these kind of reminds me of some of the old Fallout talents you could have. Uh, you know, you had Night Person and the Day something.
0: Solar Powered.
1: And I was wondering, Solar Powered, yes. Yeah. <laughs> so I was wondering if you'd pulled in any kind of any inspiration from any of those other games with
2: them? You know, I didn't, actually. Yeah. I'm not sure exactly how I settled on Metallic Skin for them, and then I just knew that I wanted to have two sub-races so that people had some choices that yeah. they could make. And then everything just sort of worked off of there. Awesome. uh, Just from warm colors and cold colors. Yeah.
1: No, I like it. And then, uh, you know, because someone's going to pull up, there's going to be a rules lawyer at some point. And and you mentioned specifically with, with the Hearth Bless that they get their advantages Whenever there is sunlight, whether or not they can see it, which is a great rule. So my mind first popped up: Well, what happens in an eclipse? Does that affect the lore or the magic in any way? Or you know, because that's going to get asked by a table, if not by me, then, then by someone true. like me. So I that's wasn't true. Sure I was would it affect your characters or not?
2: Yeah, I would say that that would affect. Okay. I think that would be a uh oh, hearth blast foundling. Yeah. Like, so this, this is a bad, unexpected situation for you.
1: So, yeah. Again, hopefully, it's a rare event. <laughs> or if your BBEG happens to be a foundling, if you're going to go that direction, maybe the foundlings, they hit a certain age and maybe they go mad or something. Again, because they're new, we don't know a lot about them. Yeah,
2: even the foundlings, they don't know how long they live.
1: Right, or maybe they gain power and you just have a particularly bad ilk of a group of these and this is going to be your chance to move. And again, you kind of get stuff like that with Avatar and things like that. But, you know, that whole celestial event kind of, it's always a grand trope to throw into things. And so I wasn't sure if you had considered that with these or not specifically.
2: I hadn't considered it, but I like the idea.
0: Nice. see, reading through the GM's book because I read through the GM's book and James read through the player's book. Uh, Just reading through that, I would have actually come to a different conclusion because, and this may be spoiler and I may have to cut it, but um, (laughs) because the sun isn't real, the sun is a construct. Oh, see, I I did not get that in the player's book. Yeah. Interesting.
1: (laughs) Okay. Yeah,
2: there's, there's, th- there's a chapter in the Game Master's manual that dishes <laughs> so cool. all of the secrets of the meta plot, because nice. I, I built a very complete rule, so there's reasons for everything that has happened. Oh, and, that's exciting. Uh, <laughs> yeah, there's there's a sidebar deep in there that's like, so how broken is this world? and it, It's pretty broken.
1: It's all in a snow globe. <laughs> but it's designed
2: to be a broken world, yeah. and it's designed to even be broken further. Um, Like I'm going to keep putting out material adventures, campaign modules, but I'm not going to put out this is the timeline as it progresses for people like their characters, their tables. That's the canon story arc. So I even have some sidebars offering up different possibilities for like, hey, do you want to break the world even more? Because it should be easy post-apocalyptic settings have they walk a fine line of survival and so like i wanted game masters to not be afraid to just go ahead and break it further if it's what your story says should happen
0: yeah have your campaign be to go and break the rest of the artifacts so that the world can finally end yeah
1: <laughs> <laughs> it's just you know like, it's it like, it's we're, we're just
0: done <laughs> <laughs>
1: we it's want done. it to be over <laughs> We're putting ourselves out of our misery And maybe the next one will be
2: better. (laughs) Yeah, my players, uh, they've collectively gone the opposite. They want to save the world. So we had a campaign that lasted about six years. And uh, I don't know, maybe it lasted about 10 years in game. And so then what they did was they founded a secret order to help save the world. And now we've skipped 20 or 30 years into the future. And they've made new characters, all level one. And they're acolytes of the order that they founded. Um, oh, nice. Because they figured like, well, it's a really broken world. So if we want to save it, it's going to take a while. Yeah. So it'll take many generations to get there. And there was somebody in their backstory that the first Acolyte they tried to train, they told them too much too quickly. And they <laughs> completely went crazy. And like, yeah, like that would be somebody that's basically somebody who would have been like, let's just break it all and put this world out of its misery. Yeah like what do you mean the sun's not real i can't take this (laughs) i was
1: gonna say that would make an amazing either cleric domain and or paladin oath be like the oath or the domain of euthanasia and (laughs) you know what it's bad let's go ahead and let it crumble and die and whatever comes next comes next but we're just suffering this way and (laughs) that would be a
2: release would work well (laughs) if it were a dustman from sigil somehow slipped in yeah (laughs) yeah this is proof we're all already (laughs) dead
0: yes so we talked a bit at length about the foundlings my personal favorite race that you presented were the lichen blooded
1: yeah um, those were really awesome they, too. they
0: were just really cool but i also loved the aesthetic of the yeti <laughs> yes i they're they yeah. just they're just so much fun <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah they're neat i've always liked the idea of a species that is big and tough and strong but that their culture is, does not lend itself to, like, I just want to make a fighter or a barbarian. Right. Because just personally, I'm, I'm not much of a min maxer when I make characters. And so, and I made so many different rules for all the things that you listed. I tend to try to make it not too powerful. Like, I don't want to put out a rule set that might break somebody's game. So I didn't want to make a right. race that was just going to be the ultimate barbarian. And yeah, and so that we went very not warlike very very at one with at one yeah. with nature they get the druid cantrip
1: yeah they kind of have the bulk feel to them for you know 5e which I like
2: yeah yeah I think so
1: one of the things that Ian and I joked about forever ago and I don't know if he remembers this but we joked about you know the possibility of having like the orc fighter or orc barbarian but in his downtime he does bobbin lace and just kind yeah. of sits there and, well, and that's, yeah. that's, so I it yeah mean, that was the, where
0: <laughs> that was where my my orc forge cleric came from
1: oh, okay awesome
0: yeah, that was where that concept came from. Is because okay. he's a tinker. He goes around yeah. from town to town fixing things with the mending cantrip.
2: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's a that's good work. Yeah,
0: that's, that's, <laughs> that's just that's what he does. And and he, and that's he, a, he carries yeah. he carries his little portable forge with him so that he can do some metalwork. You know, because some things are just too big to fix with mending, and so he does actual repairs as well. But yeah, yeah that's what he does. He he walks from rural town to rural town, helping farmers fix plows and you know. Wagon axles walls, and what, what happens? Yeah, you you, know, you can't sharp, tell me that's not God's sharp and work. Sharpen scissors and patches pots yeah. and
2: these things need to be done. Yeah, adventurers
0: exactly. are good.
1: At it. Like if I was a cleric in real life, I would be that kind of cleric. You know, just kind of mm-hmm. like in the community, just helping out. You know, here's some food. You know, I'll help you mow your lawn. I'll help you do it. You know, but yeah, that's God's work. You know, going out and helping the people. Love it. Yeah. Okay, I have to get the goodness off me
2: now. Sitting in my <laughs> 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 All right. Oh yeah, sorry. The lichen blooded. Um. Yeah, at the very start, I was hoping to find a way to make lycanthropes in general playable for PCs, and it just seemed I couldn't quite get the game balance to work. And so I thought about, well, what about Blades, a half vampire? So how about people that are lycan-blooded? And for listeners, it means that one of the parents or grandparents of the PC was an infected lycanthrope at some point, and the curse just sort of taints their family sometimes. And so then they're immune to lycanthropy for starters, because if they're not, that really opens up a whole box of,
0: of <laughs> headache,
2: potentially really? for the player and the game master.
0: What happens if uh, you know if a rat, like blooded, gets bit by a werewolf?
2: Yeah. do <laughs> like, yeah. they become a, yeah, a werewolf be, rat? <laughs> <laughs> it would be a whole mess. So in the rules, they're just immune to the curse of other creatures, but they have a slight allergy to silver, and they are potentially uh, very charmable by true lycanthropes of that kind. If they're a lycan blooded werecat person, like if there's a real werecat or a more powerful, like a werecat lord, then that party member could easily end up charmed by them, like yeah, outside because of combat.
1: Your master lycanthropes is going to be able to control the pack and everything. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, that's just mm-hmm. makes good mechanical sense. I love it.
2: Yeah, and people love. Were creatures yeah. like definitely people jumped at the chance, <laughs> yeah. I, would. I mean,
1: really, <laughs> to play
2: some of them, and they were fun to make stuff for. Like a feat, I made some feats for each of the new races that I made. I thought, well, now I need to make at least one feat for everybody. <laughs> and so, for them, there's one where they can sort of bring the cursed more to the surface, okay, and sort of for a short while become much more like the pure trait nice. of their people. Of their type of lichen. And then just lichens in general really plays into the survival theme of an apocalyptic setting and the horror theme that sort of runs underneath. Fading embers with a lot of the aberrations and the Lovecraftian feeling. Lycanthropes are definitely horror based.
1: Yeah. And now uh, we've said lycanthrope enough. I want to make a druid with like a green beard and we can call him Lycanthroat, Throat. And maybe he has like a little bit of photosynthesis going on, like through this region here.
2: That's
1: <laughs> bit my of pun for the day. Yeah. <laughs> That's my pun for the day. I'm going with it. And Ian's trying not to face Paul.
0: <laughs> he's, he's got this strange fungus algae conglomeration all over his face
1: it'd be perfect for circle of spores really because i mean you mm-hmm. have the lycan- i was just, just gonna to say it. yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> i have named my circle of Spores dude he's gonna be a lycan throat
2: <laughs> that might be an npc in, <laughs> yeah, in my game
1: uh, nice
0: <laughs> all right so we're running a little long so what's the next big project going to be is there another big project in the works
2: Definitely. At the moment, the very next one is small. It's just going to be an adventure for sort of like tier two level characters. Uh, It's called Trouble in the Sourwood. And there's a link to my landing page. ValiantFoxGaming.com has links to all my places. And so there's a link to there if people want to be notified when the Kickstarter eventually launches. And
0: we will put a link to that in the the show notes. So you can can find it in the show Uh, notes.
2: Eventually, once I do one or two adventures, then I'll start doing a big campaign module for each of the monster categories that I like to focus on. So the first one will be all about the Fae. And then the second one will be all about Undead. Okay. And that sort of thing.
1: Okay. I like it. Excellent. Yeah, I will definitely look forward to that. Just like I said, as much work as you put in with your character creation for your races and classes, your monster manual
2: stuff's going to be amazing. Oh, thank you. Yeah, the Game Master's Manual really ended up much bigger than I'd realized it was going to. <laughs> my bias is showing in it. <laughs>
0: That's why I only got through the GM's book.
2: Yeah, understandable.
0: All right. I think I'm done on my end. James, are you you done? Yeah,
2: no, I've got my
1: questions in too, so.
0: All right. Well then, one of the things that we love to do with our guests is to roll some dice on our random generator table in a segment we call Monster Mashup. So, John, if you have your dice ready, we will... I do indeed. We will go ahead and get started with that. All right. So the first thing we're going to need is a D4 roll for Locomotion. All right. Theme power. Uh, a three. A three. It burrows. I like it. Oh, burrows again. All right. All right. Next up is a D6 roll for What Does It Eat? Right right. Five. Five? Living meat. I love oh, it. Oh, no, I'm I just not, listened to this, I'm this episode. I'm, not <laughs>
1: <it>. <laughs> I'm being haved this time.
0: Oh.
1: It's going to be tiny, well. and I'm being haved.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, let's just say that something like that would be appropriate for this setting. That's it true. would
1: be. As we get through, I might want to make a small change to one of the rules. I will bring it up after it's rolled, though, so please continue. Okay. So we've got something burrowed. We have something that's eating living meat. So far, I'm great with this.
0: All right. So next up is going to be a D8 roll for size. Uh, six. Six. It's huge. Okay. So we're going to be having something along the lines of a purple worm, maybe? Possibly. <laughs> a frost worm?
1: It's, it's leaning that way. Again, depending on on what we go, I, I have some ideas, but I, I kind of want to hold them back. So bear with me. Okay. I think I have an idea.
0: Okay. Uh, next up is another D eight roll for social organization. A uh, three, three brood, one parent plus young.
2: Okay, that's I'm good with that. A brood of huge sized ones.
1: Yeah, and again, probably as they mature, the the you know the young would
0: leave, so they're not always. Yeah, there. the young aren't going to be huge. Yeah, they yeah, they'll be. just be like large. Yeah, they'll start. Yeah. They'll like hatch out at medium. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so here's going to be the thing that is going to tell us whether we can put it in your setting or not. <laughs> <laughs> Next up is a D10 roll for native environment. All right. It is a nine. A nine. Swamps, bogs, marshes.
1: Yeah, and this is what I was going to bring up. If you guys are willing, we can straight override and make this a sort of ice or tundra creature. Um, Something that would burrow through the ice, burrow through
0: the tundra. We can do that, yeah. Sure. It's an an option on the list. We can totally do that.
1: Yeah. Some of the aberrations that you think, um, I was going to ask mid-interview is... You don't have a lot of sea creatures and for a sea creature to come up from underneath where to be pockets of water or, you know, oceans or lakes to burrow up through the ice and then breach and then just cause chaos on the surface and kind of come back in. Maybe like a narwhal or a polar bear or like some sort of giant whale would totally
2: work. That's true. Yeah. You could Burrow through ice. Yeah. Wreck havoc on ships,
0: uh, well, even in the
2: setting there's an upper sea, which is completely frozen solid. And so there's, you know, ice boats and ice fishermen and stuff up there. And yeah, there must be some big monsters up there that can burrow up through the ice to yeah, get the unsuspecting Maybe they fisher. can hear
1: like whatever walking above. And so they like haunt trade routes because they hear so much activity. And then they just come up and, hey, there's obviously food up there. So they just come, you know. Yeah. So uh, again, a possibility. Oh, there's
2: something else on the chart. Oh
0: yeah, yeah.
1: oh yeah, we've got we've got a bit Uh, more. We still
0: still got a couple more rolls to go.
1: I I just wanted to throw that out as a possibility because I think we could get this to fit really well with your location and your setting.
0: Yeah, I think so. I am okay with changing this to Arctic slash tundra as the native environment. Okay. Okay. Next is a D twelve roll for method of defense. Oh, that's right. All right. A three. Three, a venomous bite.
1: I'm liking it. Interesting. So yeah, it pops up, it bites, and maybe that bite paralyzes or stuns so it can drag them back down.
2: Yeah, even if it's just a fast-acting poison that doesn't necessarily need to do poison damage, just needs to to slow you
1: or maybe it stuns you for like, one like possibly
2: paralyze you for a minute yeah. or even would be more than long enough
0: all yeah. it does is it inflicts the poison condition so all yeah. of your attack rolls ability checks and saving throws are made with disadvantage you know yeah just that in and of itself
1: itself will wreck your day yeah <laughs> okay liking it so far
0: all right okay uh next is a d20 roll for quirks all right, a one. Okay, can lift twenty times their body weight.
2: Oh, <laughs> I love it. I that that love makes. It. Yeah, well, now they have to hunt ships, mm-hmm. <laughs> and especially where they're busting
1: up through the ice because they got to move that ice, right?
2: So I guess if it's a brood, so a parent and the young, then the parent leads the way up through the ice and does at least that first connection with the underside of a ship. Yeah. and tries to capsize it and then... Or even if
1: they will do a full breach and try to slam and maybe a shockwave to knock things over that way. In the yeah,
2: as, as people fall overboard, they become yeah. prey for the medium to large size young.
1: Yeah. Okay.
2: That way people can have a little bit more of a diversity in what they have to fight. Like, okay, they're only medium size. That's cool. <laughs> That's cool, guys. I think we can do... that. Why is that one bigger? Okay, there's a, there's a big one too. <laughs>
0: Okay, so now we get to make it weird. Did we
1: roll number of limbs?
0: Uh, That's not on the chart anymore.
1: Oh, okay. My apologies. That works.
0: Yeah, I replaced that one with the native environment check.
1: Okay, perfect. Mm.
0: So now we get to make it weird. Hey, weird. So if I could get a D100 roll, please. All right. A seven. Seven. It's young, are parasitic, and mimic another species. Oh,
2: my word.
1: (laughs) What if they mimic drowning or falling people? So people oh, okay. are going to let them and bring them up on board, and they have that poisonous bite, and they can latch yeah. on to Yeah.
2: Maybe the very young ones, the medium-sized ones, easily mimic the humanoids that would need ships to cross yeah. the seas.
1: So they could almost have like a frozen mermaid-type look. Dude, a giant mermaid, or merpeople. And so, like, the adults are colossal, and then the young look more humanoid, and so they're going to look like they're drowning, and then whatever happens, and then they come up, and then maybe after they've eaten so much or, you know, hit a point, they have, like, a molt, and they shed back to them, and they get back to the ice and the water and try to go back under or something.
2: Yeah, and the parasitic, the medium-sized young could even, I guess parasitic sort of implies some sort of control, maybe, possibly, like a little bit of a charm.
1: Okay. that yeah. they can
2: use once they've been fished out of the water they can try to charm someone and sort of sabotage the boat It's they have a sirens, it's a siren's
0: call. call
2: yeah yes so they sing
0: out and someone on that ship hears it and is entranced by them Hear and you know, brings them in. It's like, look, here's this person who is adrift in the sea, and I have saved them, and brings them onto the boat. And then they end up, whenever everyone
2: goes to sleep that night, going into a feeding frenzy. Yes. Yeah, or it sends out their call to the mom or the dad. Yeah, so the then rest of the brood can come. Then burrows up with the rest of the brood nice. to start breaking things.
1: These things are terrifying. I love it. <laughs> yes. We can actually do some horrible because we really do. <laughs> All
0: right.
2: Yeah, I need to get my party out on a boat now.
0: <laughs> All right, James, do you want to do the second one or do you want me to do the second one? Go ahead and do the second
1: one. I've got my stuff, but it's packed up.
0: All right. And I rolled let's last see, week, so. Let's see what we got. 83. What is 83? This is appropriate. Never dies of old age, just keeps getting bigger. Nice. <laughs> Uh, I love it.
1: I love it. Oh wow! I like that. And then maybe because the environment's so cold, their growth after a certain point is slowed, and that's why they're only huge and not colossal shaped yet. You
0: know? Yeah, because it make- it's one of those things where once you hit a certain point, you physically can't consume enough to keep up that metabolism, and you end yeah. up just freezing. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: Nice. Okay, I'm liking these. I am liking these.
0: Okay. So let us go ahead and recap what we've got. So it burrows, it eats living meat. It is huge in size. Its social organization is a brood of a parent plus young. We have decided to make the native environment Arctic slash Tundra. It has a venomous bite. It can lift 20 times its body weight. Its young are parasitic and can mimic another race. And they never die of old age. They just keep getting bigger. So, what are we going to call it?
2: gives the option to make a truly old one with like a legendary yes. like status. Mm-hmm. I
1: am uh, terrible at naming things, but I'm going to take a stab at Frostmaidens.
0: Well, we already have Frostmaidens.
1: Do we have Frostmaidens already? Okay. I was kind of going trying to go with uh, the whole mermaid yeah. theme.
0: Well, I mean because there is a whole adventure path called Rime of the Frostmaidens.
1: Okay, that's correct. That's, that's probably, where I, yeah. probably where I was picking that up
2: from
0: they're connected to burhags, hags i think i okay. can't remember the lore on them
2: but yeah something with like well crone makes it does yeah that yeah. sounds more I like a hag. Something,
1: along the line of something like again we have foundlings because that would work well or like an orphan or or something you need to rescue and pull in because that's what a lot of people are going to see this they're going to be drawn to it and they're going to have to want to rescue it and they're going to want to bring it in we can call them stowaways not quite right but
2: oh yeah like that,
0: the, that young, be, that the youngest like- ones that could be what the sailors refer to the as.
2: Yeah, definitely. Like, oh nope, don't get that one out of the water. That's Somebody stowaway. stop him. That's a stowaway.
0: <laughs> yeah, uh, I've been it. through
2: this before. <laughs>
0: Might even be one of those things where the enchantment is so strong that the only way to save the ship is to actually boot them overboard. Oh yeah, yeah. Maybe sacrifice the crashing? crewmen to to this uh, whoever's irony. been
2: whoever's yeah. been compromised. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Just get rid of them.
1: Jonah's Folly? Yeah,
2: probably. That would definitely be the way to go.
1: I actually kind of like that, but Jonah's Folly. Because, you know, with the whole thing of Jonah and the Whale, they threw him over to try to appease the sea, because that's what they thought. And if someone's staring the ship, it would be a Folly for that. And again, Ice Banshee or something along those lines, something that calls out or sings.
2: A deep Folly?
1: Yeah. Um, uh, Maybe something with the term diva, like an opera diva that sings.
0: Yeah, it's not coming to me naturally. Yeah, <laughs> let's See here, I'm see here. I kind of want to include Siren. In it because it is doing that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, It's just I can't find a good adjective to put in the front of it.
2: I mean, just call them sirens of the deep.
0: Uh, Just a, yeah, deep siren.
2: Deep sirens, yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Okay.
2: Because the big ones must be down pretty far at first i love it and it's no i it's, like these
1: a lot these are going to be fun
0: yeah it's bringing me back to some of the earlier seasons of the lovely craftians podcast it's a call of cthulhu actual play podcast and in there one of the characters from season 1 picks up an artifact and ends up being turned into a siren
1: oh okay oh wow
0: and the sirens i don't know if it's a call of cthulhu lore thing or if it's just the game mistress's thing but those sirens also don't die of old age they just keep getting bigger and so oh, nice and so like there's there's sirens down in the bottom of the mariana's trench that are like 120 feet long
2: oh wow love cool. it
0: yeah it's, it's great no I yeah, it's it. like it's the, the vibes like that it's great yeah.
2: <laughs> yeah like the great fairies in breath of the wild but if they yeah. were evil and had mouthful of razor sharp poisonous teeth yeah i love
1: it I, I love it i really do okay. yeah so that was well done of, guys
2: yeah
0: yeah that was that was a lot of fun that, that was a hard one all right so the other thing we like to ask our guests is to give a shout out to someone else in the community it can be a podcast or a content creator musician artist just whoever somebody in the ttrpg sphere so who would you like to give shout out to today
2: Alright, I'd like to give a shout-out to one of the artists who has worked with me, Van J. Levent. Their Twitter handle is at Levent Art. They're an artist, they're Ukrainian, and they live in Kyiv, oh. uh, and have been there through all of it thus far. I believe they're still there. And they are taking commissions, still. So I would encourage anybody to check them out, at Levent Art, or uh, if anyone ends up on the valiant fox gaming website i have an artist's gallery page there where every artist who i've worked with is represented there with a piece that they've done and they all have buttons with their name on it and if you click the button it will take you to a page of their choice Uh, so you can also you can also find them there
0: all right and last but not least we're going to open the floor to you to plug (laughs) yourself and your stuff so tell us where we can find you where we can find your products and uh, the floor is yours. Where do we go to throw money at you? <laughs> All
2: right. ValiantFoxGaming.com is my website. There's a product section that will link to my stuff at Drive-Thru RPG, or it's PDF or print-on-demand. And more recently, I released a handful of digital token sets on the Roll20 marketplace. Those also can link straight from my products page. And on the main page, there's a link to the landing page for my next thing, which is the Adventure Trouble in the Sourwood. There's a coming soon button that goes to the landing page where it has a preview of the cover art for the adventure by Laszlo Pinter, another artist I've worked with. And there's a button way at the bottom to join my email list so that you'll be notified when the Kickstarter launches. And if you do so, it will also give you a code so that if you want to get the PDF bundle of all three manuals from Drive Through, it will take additional money off of that.
0: Snazzy. Excellent,
2: Uh, and that's my current
0: goal. (laughs) (laughs) Well, John, thank you so very much for joining us tonight on Uncommon. Yes, it's been a blast.
2: Thanks for having me, and thanks for taking the time to read through so much of my material. I know there's a lot. (laughs)
1: lot, It was amazingly well put together, and thank you for that. Like I said, just the amount of work and what you have there was absolutely amazing. I really enjoyed going through it. So thank you.
0: And thank you everyone for listening and watching tonight. If you have any comments, suggestions, or ideas, please send us an email under taste at gmail.com or send us a direct message through our Twitter account at UCT homebrew. We are also on Instagram, Facebook, Twitch, TikTok, and YouTube. Just search under taste. We are also on Patreon, patreon.com slash taste. That's where we put all of our write-ups. That's where our deep siren write-up is going to be here in about a week or so. Most of our write-ups are free. Some of them are patron-exclusive. Our most recent patron-exclusive write-up has been for our Urban Ranger variant class. And all of our patron-exclusive content is available to everyone, regardless of tier. So if you want to come and help support the show financially, please consider becoming a patron. Finally, we also have a Discord. You can find a link to the Discord in the show notes, and we would love to have you come and chat with us.
1: Yes, absolutely. You can find our podcast wherever you find your podcasts are on Apple iTunes, Spotify, iHeartRadio, TuneIn, Google. As always, please subscribe and give us a like and review. This helps increase our visibility and lets us know what you want to hear more of.
0: Next week we are finally going to get back into Gehenna and wrap up <laughs> that plane. I know we were gonna do it a couple of weeks ago and then we had Doctor Mary instead, and honestly Doctor Mary is more entertaining than Gehenna, so yes, by far. Gehenna is kind of the opposite end it's a volcanic bleak place but we'll see you next week in Gehenna stay safe everyone and we'll see you then happy gaming thank you for listening to another episode of Undercommon Taste you can find links to all of our social media accounts Twitter, Instagram, Facebook YouTube and Twitch as well as our Patreon and Discord channel in the show notes our theme song is Massacre Anne written and performed by Mary Crowell and used with permission you can find more of her work at marycrowell.bandcamp.com or on Patreon at patreon.com slash Crowl. Our logo was illustrated by David Sutherland. You can find him on Instagram at Willex underscore 73 or on DeviantArt at deviantart.com slash Sutherland. Thanks again for listening. Stay safe. We'll see you again next week.